As you turn to John, we're in John chapter 5, finishing up John 5 today. As you get your, find your place, let me just bring a couple things to your attention. Um, <laughs> I was raised in a, a Baptist church, not just a Baptist church, a Southern Baptist church, and we always did everything the exact same way, always. And uh, so when you may come in here, you may see things a little bit different, I know, from the, at least from the way that we always, what we call, do church. You know, at the end of the service, there was always what we called the invitation. You know, 16 stanzas of just as I am. And there was all kind of things that went on during the invitation. Uh, what, we, what we say here at the end is what we're about to do is hear from God. This is God's word. When God's word speaks, God speaks. And the gospel, and this is important, is not yet proclaimed if we do not command and call for a response to that gospel. And, and so we call what we do at the end a response. And we, re, we actively respond. So what you have at the back are, are communion that's always said every week. The Lord told us to do it until he comes, and that's what we're going to do. There's also offering plates back there. So it's part of our active worship. We, we During the time when we worship, the praise team will lead us in a couple songs. As we pray and worship and prepare ourselves, we come as a family to the table, and we give for the work of ministry, and then we respond by scattering into our community to do what God's Word tells us to do. Okay? So I just wanted to remind us, that's what we're doing at the end of the service, and that's why we're doing it. And uh, also as well, if you would like to, to join our church, just, just let us know. We have classes that run every month as well. So just, just wanted to say that just by way of information. So let's get ourselves. We've slept a few times since last week. What's the context before we stand to our feet? The issue, remember, is the healing of a lame man on the Sabbath day. We said this opposition is beginning to grow. We're going to see it grow even more today and how Jesus engages this opposition. The issue is the healing of the man. And the core issue is that he did it on the Sabbath day. What's the question? The question is, who has the authority to go against what man says we should do? Who has this authority to do, to heal on the Sabbath day? Last week we heard Pastor Micah say the clear declaration is the Son of Man has authority. He has declared his authority. The authority that was prophesied in Daniel has been fulfilled by Christ. And so our passage today is that this opposition is growing. The accusations of how dare you, what, how do you have this authority are being waged and so as we stand to our feet to read God's Word, I just want you to know Jesus is engaging in courtroom language now. They have waged an accusation, and He is going to engage it. So let's stand to our feet. Let's hear what, how the Lord engaged this question of authority. Chapter 5, look at verse 31. We're going to read down to verse 47. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that that testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Now that testimony that I, re that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. 
He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that, that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has borne himself witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own names, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you think that I will accuse you to the Father? There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his writings, how will you believe in my words? This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we now come to the table, table of your word, the gathering of your people. Lord, there are some of us who still cannot gather together here, and they're watching online, and we pray for them now as we pray for us to not only hear God's word to see it but to receive it to grab hold of it and to never let it go to seek to apply it into the life that you have given us to the season that we find ourselves in, our, in the anxiety of all that we are having to navigate in our life and in our careers and in our children's life and to those that we are ministering to help us now comfort your people in Jesus name Amen. Be seated. So last week, Jesus has made a claim. A claim that God is his Father and that he is one with and equal to him. Jesus had made a claim last week that he has his Father's authority, that he brings his Father's judgment, and that he also gives his Father's love and has received his Father's mission. Yet... Jesus is distinct. He is the distinct Son of God in a unique relationship with His Father and that He submits to His Father's will. The growth group has talked about how can you be one with and equal to God and yet submit to Him. It has an impact on all your relationships. What we talked about last week. The opposition is growing. And we see it, we can feel it. John wants you to feel that opposition growing in Jesus' ministry. The religious leaders and Jesus agree with one thing. There's something wrong with the world. They both agreed with that. <laughs> There's something wrong with this world. And I think most of us could agree with that. You see, the problem is answering what's wrong. The problem is, how can it be made right? They didn't agree with that. Who can make it right? You see that issue of authority? Who has the ability, the authority to make it right? 
The world said, you do. Christianity says there's only one who has authority. He has already provided the means to make it right. And one day he will make all things right. So you see the problem. The religious leaders say, we need a Messiah that's going to fix our issues. Jesus says, your biggest issue is the issue you have with God. And I have come to fix that. The truth is, today, today, is even those who are professing believers no longer say that Christ alone is necessary for salvation. The Cultural Research Search Center in a, in a place in Arizona, and I have the, this information if you'd like to read it, has a new survey just came out that the majority of Americans no longer believe that Jesus is the path to salvation and instead believe, believe that being a good person is sufficient. Half of the respondents that say that they're Christians say that they can believe that you can attain salvation by being or doing good. In addition to the viewpoint of, of this, of eternal salvation, that the fact that it can be earned, 58% of Americans believe that there is no absolute moral truth that exists anymore, and the basis for whatever truth it is are factors other than God. 77% say that right and wrong is determined by factors other than the Bible. 59% say that the Bible is not God's authoritative and true word. And 69% said that all people are basically good. So what's going on here? <laughs> if we just said, let's take the world and most Americans, let's talk about professing Christians, that most of professing, many professing Christians, up to his half are rejecting Christ alone, Scripture alone, and saved by grace alone. They have a vested interest to believe that they are basically good despite all the evidence of their own life, the evidence of their own children, that we are not basically good. Why is that? The issue, you see, is still authority. The issue is authority in chapter the issue is not going away. I want you to flip in your Bibles. Look at chapter 7. Jesus is going to park the car on authority for the next couple chapters. One could say he never moves it. Look at, look at verse 17, chapter 7. If anyone will do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking of my own what? Authority. Verse 18. The one who speaks from his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. You see the issue still authority. Look down at verse 21. Jesus answered him, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? You see, the issue in chapter 7 is the same issue that's in chapter 5. The issue of what Jesus did by his own authority on the Sabbath day. I want us to see very clearly today 
Jesus' divine authority has been confirmed by a fourfold witness and now commands our worship. So you see, there's, a, there's both a gospel message and there is a response to that gospel message. The fourfold witness is going to command a response, and our response will be our worship. This is our active response. This is what we were saying. We actively respond. So Jesus' authority. What are these witnesses? Well, let's look at them. There's at least four. One can make a very good argument. There's actually five. We'll talk about that. It's been confirmed. I like the word corroborated better because this is legal language. It's what he's doing. Look at verse 31. It could be rather confusing if sometimes if you take one verse out of context without a context. Verse 31 says this, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, if you read that verse in isolation without the context and without the whole context of Scripture, you're sitting there going, wow, are we not supposed to believe what Jesus says about himself? Here's the question it should cause. Why does the Son of Man need any testimony? Why did he have to do this? Did he? Why did he have to bring the witnesses to the witness stand, so to speak? Look at chapter 8 and verse 14. A good verse to put in tension here. Jesus answered, John 8 verse 14. Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So Jesus is engaged here. In legal conversation. This is legal language. They are questioning his authority. And so he goes to the Old Testament law and he uses the book that they believe, that they trust. He loses scripture and he says, Let's do it scripturally. Let's call the witnesses to the witness stand. Question is why is this necessary? you to grab this today these people hated jesus they wanted to kill him they would look at verse 34 this is why why this message is today it's happening today is in verse 34 now that the testimony that i receive not that the testimony that i receive is from man but i say these things do you see it so that you may be saved these people want to kill him. They don't believe in his authority. And we could just say Jesus didn't care a least bit for these Pharisees. He just, he just wanted them out of the way. No, he loved them. What's the proof? He calls the witnesses to the witness stand. Listen to me. The Son of Man didn't have to do that. He could simply say, I am who I am. Repent or perish. Instead, this is mercy today. It was mercy for him to call them. He didn't have to. He did it so that they might be saved. Love, we all know 2 Peter 3, 9. 2 Peter was written to Christians. This is comfort for God's people. When people made fun and say, the Lord's not coming back. You can't trust the promises of God. 2 Peter 3, 9 says this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises as some count slowness. 
but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. It's good news today. It was good news for the Pharisees. It was good news to read in Acts that some of the religious leaders were believed. Jesus then calls the first witness to the witness stand. John the Baptist, take your place. You've heard from John a lot. I just want you to look at one thing here in verse 35. John, this is his testimony. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. John was a lamp. Uh, You could see by this language, this lamp brought both light and heat. The New Testament testifies to it. And if you read a Jewish historian named Josephus, he also wrote about John. When John the Baptist comes on the scene, it creates a lot of excitement. There was energy in the air in the Jewish community as this one stepped out that was prophesied and said, The Messiah is coming. He's here. Repent. People were saying, The Messiah is coming. He's, he's here. We've been waiting on him. That you were excited about that. But that John, listen, this is important. John was a, a lamp that brings you to the light. Remember John 1? He's not the light, capital L. John's testimony on the stand was, I'm just a lamp. I'm a lamp that carries you to a person. And that that person was Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He was the light. And they accepted it for a time. They cared for John, but they did not care for where John brought them. You accepted the lamp, but you rejected the light. A little small application point here. Paul tells the church in Philippi, Philippians 2.15 this, that you be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. That's what John's testimony was. I was just a lamp testifying that Jesus is the way. Second witness. Called the second witness. He is the star witness. And honestly, everything that comes after this comes from the father he's the star witness so he calls the father to the witness stand look at verse 36 but the testimony that i have is greater than that of john for the works that the father has given me to accomplish the very works i am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me so he's saying the is the testimony of the father is weightier than john weightier look at he puts the works here do you see it for the works that the father has given me to accomplish many people and I think it's good it could be I could have had another point here given the testimony of the works many people put the miracles as a testimony we're talking about signs I'll tell you why I chose to put it right here because these works are coming from the father They're actually wrapped up in the Father's testimony of who His Son is. 
Look at verse, back up to verse 30. He begins really this with the Father. Jesus saying in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. So what are these works that come from the Father? Well, truly, they're his signs that we've been looking at. But, but don't forget about the work of redemption. <laughs> There's a work that Jesus came to do. There are not, yes, miracles. He did works. But he came to do a work. And that work was our redemption achieved at the cross with the exaltation, the lifting up of the Lamb of God, the lifting up of the Son of Man. I want you to see this, though. It's really clear in chapter 17. Jesus came with two things ultimately, works and word. The works he was given to do and the word he was given to proclaim. Look at John 17. Remember, this is the high priestly prayer. Look at verse 4. Jesus is praying to the Father. I glorified on you on earth, having accomplished what? The work that you gave me to do. You see that? The works that he was doing came from the Father. They came from his will. Look at verse 8. For I have given them the what? The words that you gave me. And they have received them. And listen. And they have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. You see, Jesus works. We're not given to prove the existence of God. They were given as a sign of his authenticity that he was sent from God. They didn't prove it. They authenticated. They, they were to given as an authentic marker of his identity. And they came from the Father. To reject him is to reject the Father. Because the Father was the one who gave him the works and the word. How else has the Father borne witness? Well, audibly. You remember? <laughs> audibly. He bore witness. And, and if we didn't say anything else, that should be enough. You remember at his baptism, Matthew 3, 17, this is my son in whom I am pleased. I love that right there as, as a father. Your, your children need to hear that. And if someone needs it, your spiritual fathers ought to declare it to them. That is my boy and I'm proud of him. It's a good thing to hear. The father also gave testimony at the transfiguration. Do you remember? my son better listen to him listen we could call it a day right there that's enough but I want you to see something this is connected to the next testimony the father bears witness to the son through what I call this is important redemptive history we could say through all of scripture look at verse 37 the Father sent him. 
He sent him. And, and so when he sent him, he was not supposed to be unrecognizable, but recognizable because the Father had given the very words that told us who he was and what he was looking like and what he would do when he came. It was if, see if I got those. Yeah. See those little things in my Bible right there? They're little markers. So when I'm studying something, I've got one for our prayer focus. You see, I got it marked right there. I'm going to flip to it when we get to our prayer focus today. Here's what he's saying. That all through scriptures, that God has put those little markers in there. That said, when the Messiah comes, that's who he is. When the Messiah comes, that's what he's going to do. When the Messiah comes, that's what he's going to accomplish. When the Messiah comes, this is how people are going to treat him. When the Messiah comes, on and on it goes. It was the Father bearing witness throughout redemptive history that every single page, every single word in God's Word was pointing somewhere. And when He, when he came, the Father had already borne witness of who He was. The Father bore witness. The issue is not the clarity of Scripture, nor the sufficiency of Scripture. The issue is what Paul called in 2 Corinthians 3.15... A veil that was over their hearts, that having eyes they could not see, having ears they could not hear. Unless the Spirit gives life, they will not believe. John 5 now, back to 5. Look at verse 38. Jesus goes on the offensive here. We could always say it with the, with the opposition that Jesus is always in a defensive mode. Oh, no, no. <laughs> You're gonna, you ought to read the Gospels. Jesus oftentimes goes on the offensive. He does so out of love. So must we. Look at verse 38. The indictment. This is a literally a damning indictment. You do not have his word abiding in you. How do you know? How do you know? How can you make that judgment, Jesus? Because you do not believe on the one who is sent. Joshua did. You can look at Joshua 1, 8, and 9. That, that word, in him. David did. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. See, we're going to get to this in just a second. They, they read their Bibles. They knew their Bibles. They memorized it. But if you don't, don't chiefly read and meditate on God's word to see and savor Christ... You have missed the point. And it could be the fact that though you read it, it's not abiding in you. This was his indictment. This leads to the obvious third witness, Scripture itself. Look at verse 39. You search the Scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, don't misunderstand me. We... We like to try to label the Pharisees as maybe somebody that we identify in our context as liberal. As those who, like I read in the statistics, that do not believe God's word was authoritative. No, no, no. These were card-carrying fundamentalists. Conservative fundamentalists, right? That's who they were. They'll study their life. He wasn't condemning them from searching the scriptures he wasn't condemning them for seeking life. He said he condemns them because they thought the scriptures themselves 
were the reasons they had eternal life. You search the scriptures because you think in them. He says, yes, but the scriptures lead us to eternal life. Capital E, capital L. They lead us to eternal life. He says, the scriptures lead you to life by leading you to me. And if you reject me, there is no life. How else do the scriptures, how do the scriptures point to Christ? I just want you to see three basic ways that scriptures bear witness to Christ. And one we have already said, generally speaking. Matter of fact, Mike even had that in his songs that he's chosen. The uncreated word, capital W, speaking the written word. Christ Scripture is bearing witness to Christ in the unfolding plan of redemption throughout the whole of God's Word. Every single book pointing us to who Christ is and what Christ is going to do. But not only that, the second way that Scripture bears witness is with types and figures. Types and figures. That means that when you read in Exodus the Passover lamb, that was pointing to Christ. When you read about the bronze serpent being lifted up, that was pointing to Christ. When you look at the sacrificial system, that was pointing to Christ. When you look at the law, that was pointing to Christ. When you look at the tabernacle, that was pointing to Christ. All of Scripture, in the types and the, figure, in the figures, Christ is the better Joshua, the better Moses, the better David. He is the Isaac on the altar with no one to stay the Father's hand to give his life. For his people. Every, these types and figures are all through the Old Testament. They testify to Christ. But also, number three, in direct prophecy. There are three offices of, of Old Testament Scripture that are critical to not only understand the Old Testament, but to understand that Christ fulfilled it. Prophet, priest, and king. Christ is the final prophet. He is the perfect high priest. And he is the sovereign reigning king. And all of scripture proclaim it. And the prophets prophesied. And the priests pointed. And David declared. All three testify. The overwhelming testimony is clear. All of this flowing from the Father. The works of the Lord. The words of God. Yet, verse 40, look at it. Despite all this overwhelming testimony, you refuse to come to me so that you may have life. You ever been broken over somebody you love that is lost because they will not come? refuse to come. Our problem is not that we don't know that God exists. The problem is that people hate the God that exists. The problem is we don't want anybody telling us how we're going to live. That, brothers and sisters, is what's wrong with the world. The supremacy of Christ is true whether we believe it, reject it, or ignore it. There is two indictments here. The first we've already looked at. There's no word abiding in you. The second indictment is there's no love abiding in you. Do you see it? Look at verse 41 to 43. I do not receive glory from people, 
But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. How can you say that, Lord, that I don't have the love of God? I read my Bible. I go to temple every week. I tithe. I, I, I. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his name, you'll receive him. You profess that you love God. You profess that you believe in the one true God. But you do not give honor to me. This word here, honor in verse 41, is where we get the word doxology. They're, they're consumed with people. The Bible's clear that what they were really worried about was losing their authority, losing their power and control over the people because Rome could take it away from them. Your conduct is what he's telling them. Your conduct proved that you do not really love God. How can you say that? Because you don't love me. Deuteronomy 6, 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. He said, if that was true in your life, you'd love me. You profess to love Scripture. You profess to love God, but you reject my authority. You cannot love God and reject the authority that God ordains. It is to be self-deceived. Verse 43, that word receive there, you see it? It means to take hold of and to keep taking hold of. It's present active. You grab it and you keep hold of it. You don't receive me, but you will receive others. Historical reality. After Jesus, some counted as many as 63 messianic people came and claimed to be the Messiah and within that community and many people followed them why did they follow them because these false teachers offered to people exactly what they wanted to hear an easy to believe ism name it and claim it get it now God fixing all my problems and many people will bow at that offer but listen Jesus Christ offered the cross and that's enough he said, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And many people walked away then and today. Take hold of it. That's what he wanted them to do. That's why he went through all of this. He desired for them to take hold of him. 2 Thessalonians speaks of time while becoming lawless one in chapter 2, verse 10. And he will deceive those that are perishing. Why will they be so easy? And they are so easy to be deceived. Listen to what he says. The second half of Second Thessalonians 2 verse 10 says, Because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. It's not safe to not put your faith in Jesus Christ and in his lordship. The fourth witness I could have put this under scripture, but Moses is the fourth witness because Moses was important to the Jewish people. This was a core for them. In other words, you ever had somebody just puts their finger on a sore place in your life? This was their, this, you just don't mess with Moses or Abraham either one, but not Moses. I mean, don't you know how many books of the Old Testament he wrote? He said, You exalt the Torah. Literally says, 
you pin your hopes on Moses. Not in the one Moses wrote about. Do you see it? You pin your hopes on him. And he was writing about me. Notice he didn't, he didn't give any particular text. One good one is Deuteronomy 18.15, an important messianic text, by the way. It says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is him you shall listen. But it says writings, if you look at verse 47. He's speaking about Moses' writings as a whole here. You set your hope on what he said, but yet you've missed the whole point. Moses was talking about me. Moses was pointing to me. When Moses wrote about the tabernacle, who do you think he was talking about? You see, from beginning to end in this chapter, the Mosaic Law is an issue. Authority is the issue. So he begins and ends with this issue of this man being healed on the Sabbath day. And then he brings up Moses as a witness against him. A witness for his authority. I love this. I couldn't improve on it, so I'm just going to quote it. The tragedy, however, was that the Jews had regarded the Mosaic ordinances, particularly those relating to animal sacrifice, as ends in themselves. They were not, therefore, ready to welcome him, who was not only the supreme revealer of the divine will, the prophet who was greater than all the prophets, but also the priest who alone could atone for the human sin. The law of Moses could not save sinners and give them eternal life. It could only expose their sinfulness. But such exposure... Moses prepared the way for the Son of God who made forgiveness a reality and enabled men to receive praise from God. If the Jews therefore really believed Moses, if in, in other words, they really longed for divine forgiveness and eternal life, they would now be believing in Jesus. So Jesus goes through all of this to confirm, to corroborate his testimony that he is the authoritative Son of Man. Jesus' divine authority has been confirmed by the witnesses. So what? So what? This commands our worship. Jesus' divine authority commands our worship. You see, there was a good question. This is not original to me, but it, it, was, it was too good not to bring up. The question this week was, is there a fifth and final witness? I think there is. Pastor Micah pointed his scripture out as we talked about the message. Let's turn to it. Matthew 12. Matthew 12. See if you can identify the witness here. Matthew 12. Look at verse 38. Talking to the same folks. Same opposition going on. Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Sound familiar? Verse 39. But he answered them, And an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except for the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, what is the sign? 
the fifth sign. The fifth sign, brothers and sisters, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And for those that say, I will believe if only I see him raise the dead, if only I see one of those, those miracles that I see in the Bible, I would believe Jesus proclaims to you and to them as clearly as he can. The only sign you have is the risen Son of Man seating on the throne and coming in the cloud of glory. That is your sign, and you will not have another one. It is enough. That is the sign, brothers and sisters. And listen to me. That demands and commands our worship. He commands our life. He's alive. We don't worship a dead Buddha sitting on the table that we go and rub his belly. He was proclaimed as Lord 50 days after he was killed. In the time that he was killed, and no one could produce the body because there was no body. There was only the risen He's alive, brothers and sisters. And He commands our worship. And I just want to be as, as gentle but as clear as I can. You see, the application is the hard part for the pastor. It's easy to do what I've just done, relatively speaking. Because God's Word is clear. It's not easy to apply it. You know why preachers don't do application really clearly sometimes? Because they don't want to lose people. Listen. God's word is meant to be applied. And I'm concerned. Not only for myself. But some, for some of our people. And maybe you're listening today. I want to give you four ways to embrace a life of worship. The first two really are the most. The ones I've spent the most time. Praying in. The first one. Some of us. Our worship in life is being affected because of those that abuse their authority in our life. We have been abused. We have had people mishandle our hearts and our lives that were positions of authority in our life. Whether it was your father or whether it was your principal or whether it was your uncle or whether it was your preacher. And you need to heal and you need to forgive because God's worship is at stake. And listen, I have wept with you this week over this. I know there's people watching, and you won't even step into a church building because some pastor stepped on your heart. Listen, I'm sorry. But God's worship is great. Listen to me. Biblical authority is servant leadership. Godly leaders wear a towel, not a crown. And if you find a spiritual leader that wears a towel, you should submit to his authority under the lordship of Jesus Christ and his word. And if you find one wearing a crown, get away from him as quick as you can. Listen, if you don't heal from this, and you don't forgive this, you are wearing God's leaders. Because you treat them as if they are the person who abused you when they are not. I had somebody tell me one day, he sat here for a season every Sunday. The last pastor ran off with the secretary and I'm just waiting on you to do the same. Listen, that's not my problem. That is his because he has not laid that at the cross. Here's what I want you, I, I challenge you to do. I'm not telling you to do something that I haven't done. Whatever that pain is, write it on a piece of paper. 
Take the day off work. Set before your Lord with a godly friend you trust. And you pray and you plead and you don't get off your knees until the Lord has taken that. Till you have laid it at the table and you say, I am not picking that back up. I'm not laying that down. I'm not leaving that one more. Your worship is too important. Your Lordship is enough. Heal and forgive. I believe, brothers and sisters, most people that even appear to be obstinate are simply broken people that have never forgiven people that have hurt them in the past. Second, if it is obstinate rebellion, repent. God gives God-given authority. And listen, I'm not talking about all this hoopla going on in politics and culture today. I'm talking about this begins in the church of Jesus Christ. God-given authority. The context of the gospel... The context of the life of Jesus is that he came preaching the kingdom. He gathered our community. He appointed apostles. And those apostles were the leaders of the first church. Listen, this is important. The Bible assumes that every Christian is living in community under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The Bible assumes that every Christian is living in community under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And if this season has made us depressed or lazy or complacent, the Lord calls you today to repent and get back in the game. Thirdly, embrace a vision, a life vision. Embrace a life vision and make sure it requires two essential things. All we have to give is two things in this life. Your life and the gospel. And listen, the Lordship of Jesus Christ commands both. Salvation is free, but it costs you your life. Embrace a vision of life that takes both to the co-workers, to your neighbors, to your friends, and to your family, and you offer them what you have to give. My life and the gospel. And listen, if that is not enough, move on. Because that's all we got. I've had that conversation many times at the life of the church. I do not have 200 programs for you to be a part of. I have myself and I have the gospel. And if that is not enough, it is not enough. Luke 14, verse 12, listen. Jesus was at a feast. He said to the man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest also they invite you in return and you be repaid. Verse 13. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Why? Because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Embrace the vision of life that offers yourself in the gospel. And along with that, fourthly, embrace a mission that identifies what I call, and probably heard this somewhere, have no idea, the ungospeled. There are people that know the truth, they just refuse to submit to the truth. But listen, we need to be looking for the ungospeled. There are people that, that walk around this community that sit in churches where there is no gospel proclaimed. Embrace a mission that identifies them. The, it identifies the most suffering, the most depressed, the most marginalized, and then you go and you abide with them till Christ be formed in them. 
And you let them know, no matter whether the world has given up on you, no matter whether your parents has given up on you, the church of Jesus Christ will not give up on you. And we will prove it by giving our lives and giving them the gospel, no matter what it costs us. Embrace the mission. You see, I talked with a sister in Christ who labors amongst the homeless. Here's what she said. Pastor, less words, more demonstration. Good word. You see, worship isn't programs. Worship isn't studying prayer. Worship is praying. Worship isn't studying evangelism. It is evangelizing. Worship isn't studying discipleship. It is making disciples. And worship isn't praying for someone else to rescue the perishing. It is to pick up the call of God and demonstrate the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ who rescued us. Christ put on humanity. And He dwelt among us so that we might be saved. And He calls every single one of us to do the same. To find the perishing. To go in where they are suffering. And to bring yourself and to bring the gospel. This is what submitting to the authority of the Lordship of Christ looks like in our everyday life. And brothers and sisters, this is our spiritual act of worship. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your gospel. And thank you that you give us... You give us people... Thank you for the people in our life. Lord, some of them not easy to love. Some of them hate you just like Jesus was engaged with people that hated him. Some of them hate us. Some of them hate the gospel. Some of them have been wounded so bad in their life that it just looks like hate and it's really just pain. Oh God, give us your eyes to see them the way you see them. God, I pray this right now that this week you would give some people in this room the gift of mercy that have never experienced it before. Give them a boldness. Give them abiding in your word. But this is our worship. As we, we're about to corporately respond. Oh God, forgive us where we need to be forgiven. And thank you that we can be so bold because of the work of your son. To pray to you as our Father and ask you to forgive our sins so that we may come to the table and we might remember that your Son bled and died and gave everything so that we might be your children. He calls us to live a life, demonstrates it. So God help us to demonstrate it this week. May nobody be able to say, He sure does talk a lot, but what does He do? God, let us love you by the way we love other people. May we be known for it. May our businesses be known for it. May our lives be known for it. Receive our worship, God. Not because we deserve the right to worship, but because we've been covered by the blood of the Lamb. Receive our songs. Receive it as we come to the tables to show our gratefulness to you, your son. Lord. Receive it as a pleasing aroma to you.
receive our offering, God, that we're about to give. It's a pleasing aroma. It's simply an expression of your radical generosity for us. In Jesus' name, amen.